Thank you for downloading the Place Labs podcast. This episode was recorded remotely with all the issues it entails. Builders driving piles, the neighbor's son playing loud EDM, echoey rooms and headset microphones. This may cause slight glitches in the audio quality, but please do bear with us. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Place Labs podcast with me, Julien Klein. It was at the end of February, in what was then another world entirely, that we recorded our episode about disaster. We thought we were talking about climate change, about wildfires, about floods. And Covid was a mere side note back then. And still we had asked, what does it take for people to take potential disasters seriously? Will only first-hand experience, that is being emotionally affected and not just rationally aware, change our behaviour? Well, now here we are, still dealing with lockdown and its consequences, and most of the world's cities came to a halt, and our behaviour has had to change radically. But at Place Labs, rather than guess around an unfolding crisis, we choose to use this time as a great pause, that is, a moment of introspection to look at where we came from even before Covid. And that's what we'll be talking about in the first part of this episode. But a pause is also, and especially, a moment to think about where we would like to go in the future. And the futurist Peter Elliott says, the future is not a probable place we are being taken to, but a preferred place we are creating. So in the second part of this episode, we'll dream up the future. And here to create preferred places with us today are... Will Sandy, an interdisciplinary designer, architect and strategist who works on socially driven public realm projects through ultra-local interventions. Will is also an associate at McGregor Coxall, an international landscape architecture, urbanism and environment studio. Hello, Will. Paul Hanegraaff, also here, an experienced business leader and entrepreneur. He is a creative navigator at Milligan Retail and the founder of Creative Trade. Seeking to turn commercial development into innovative destinations, Paul's focus is on the future of retail in the context of new mixed-use communities. Welcome to you as well, Paul. Cool. But first, we'll go to Ivana Stanisic, an associate and architect at JTP, whose work ranges from master planning residential and mixed-use neighborhoods to the detailed design of homes. So, Ivana, if you think Hello. about home... Hi. You think about homes a lot and like to combine theory and practice. If I invite you to use this pause to reflect, how well would you say were our homes working before the pandemic and how well suited to life in lockdown? Well, um, I think it's clear to all of us that they, they were not working well before the pandemic, but what made it clear is the pandemic. So none of the issues that we find ourselves today um, having with our homes were new or due to pandemic, they were there before. And through the pandemic, um, the importance of our National Health Service became really clear to people that previously took it for granted. And similar thing happened with homes. Um, through the confinement, the effect um, of living conditions on our physical and mental health um, became really apparent and it was taken for granted previously. It's nothing that is new but we we just took it for granted so mm -hmm. we've learned the hard way the shortcomings of our homes i feel what would you say these shortcomings are so the 
the key shortcomings are um, sort of we we felt them before, but the what we really face now is the size standards, um, poor orientation, lack of daylight and sunlight in our homes. One of the key things that really stroke a chord with a lot of people is a meaning lack of meaning private um, meaningful private outdoor space and the fact that many of us could not re- retreat into a private um, outdoor space and they could not go out so this really affected us all and I think it just it was it's something that we as architects we've been um, talking about a long time but um, it's now got the spotlight on and flexibility of our homes that was lacking before and it's really apparent how it's lacking now and the size and um, openings and design of them but all these issues were felt um, severely by people who were confined to their homes before and we're not talking about um, sort of obvious um, people that we all know about because designers rarely consider anything in between for physical and mental health and wheelchair disability there are a lot of people that spend a lot of time confined to their homes regardless of the lockdown um, due to their financial situation due to the age the health that is not necessarily full um, disability and now all of us are seeing that side of the coin as well Mm -hmm. which is a great great opportunity yeah, but you said that you had been thinking about that before and that had been apparent before. Um, had you noticed already a change and do you think that will be accelerated or were we already really struggling to, to make these changes? I think the changes will be accelerated and one of the things is, I think that where it always comes, unfortunately, from is the buying power and bu- buyer's powers because people are realizing they will not be going into a, a looking at a new apartment in the future and looking at the balcony and thinking oh, this is tiny but it will do um i can spend the time in the park because you realize that you need the time in your home outdoor as well and especially we are seeing the change um imminent change with working from home i just received the news today that my mum <laughs> back home in Serbia will now be allowed to work from home um, if she wants to permanently because of the situation um, in my family and her office has allowed her has given her the news that if she wants to she has the choice which has been great news so it's already changing as we speak um, and by the time we go, get out of the lockdown the the requirements on our home will be different than they were before and everyone will be looking at their new prospective homes and thinking will I be able to work from here will I be able to have a lunch break and on a on a balcony or in a small patio and I think this has brought new knowledge to people that perhaps before didn't understand that well what they needed from homes Mm -hmm. what do you think the causes of these like misdesigns are is it is it um partly also a cultural thing that homes were designed for a different culture you know because it wasn't common to work from home and so and and it was more like homes were perhaps designed for life to happen outside out of doors you know in offices in pubs in parks um so do you think that is a cultural change that will be required first i think yes it is coming from the culture change um but it was all already there in the sense that we should have had more from our homes and supporting our our well-being and health and well-being and because not everyone what well, I'm talking about is cult- cultural changes coming to us people that have been using our homes but had the benefit of going out when we wanted to 
but now we've realised how people that are living in homes and spending a lot more time at homes see their homes and how much they benefit from better space. So it is not just to do with um, with the working environment and the flexibility. I think hopefully this will trickle down to to more socially responsible um, design, even if you're not working from home in the mm-hmm. future, if that makes sense. Because I yeah. think we, we all now understand that the social inequality, they were not all um, living through this in the same way. And it's really brought out out the issue of social inequality. So as well as thinking about working from home and how we adapt to spending time more time at home because we'll need to and we want to, we will be able to understand how people that have been spending a lot of time at home feel and how important homes are for them. We can imagine that now new developments, new residential developments will adapt and have it much easier to adapt for them. But do you think, is there a way also to improve the existing urban fabric? I think there is. And I think I, I was, throughout this process, I was walking, uh, running a lot around Hackney and observing all the spaces. And I know um, people in my family, in my immediate family, that currently live in accommodation that can spill out onto the um onto the street but is not allowed to use to leasehold arrangements of the properties and I think especially in in, um, affordable accommodation at the moment there is so much opportunity in spaces surrounding buildings that are due to different issues and different um, constraints currently completely locked for the residents and they would benefit greatly from being able to use them and you you can walk around um, any in the London borough and you can just see some of the affordable homes where the residents are not allowed to use spaces in front of them and they they lack private gardens so I think there is an opportunity a great opportunity to to change the existing fabric already Mm -hmm. okay thank you very much and that's perhaps a good cue also now to start um moving to will um so will thinking about public places which is one of your fields of um of specialty um so if we think about public places especially within neighborhoods what did we already know and what have we learned now from, from this pandemic about our streets and our, car- and our parks? Um, I think we, um, I'm going to sort of be provocative, perhaps the, the word place ma- pla- placemaking is obviously the buzzword, but I would say it's actually about place value. And it's the value we associate with our public spaces, whether they, you know, our exterior spaces, you know, Havana touched on our, our, our private spaces. I think that, that we've, reconnected we've re-evaluated our relationship with ex- any exterior space um and how we desperately need it what what that means to us um we've really kind of come back and grounded ourselves the the essentials effectively and i guess in the common practice common process normally it's it's generally the first thing that gets value engineered out of a scheme and so you've got this kind of disparate between the value and I don't know whether that's to do with the maintenance or management because we're all seeing these kind of great developments in London and big cities where the civic space is a critical part of the master plan. But if you move out of the city, it, it stops. And so um, how do you get landscape as part of the core design team from the beginning embedded as part of a project? And buildings, um, they it's in an integrated space seamless interface between the inside and the outside and yet for some reason they're they're always considered separate and and managing the two together holistically i think has to come to the fore 
So is it, uh, would you say, is it a problem of, of ownership that, that some of these public places are, are still owned privately? Or, or where's the problem? Is, is it more an, a political one? Or where do we start? I think the landscape can hold a lot. You know, it can, it can, you can start to create green infrastructure, but not thinking just about the environmental, you have to think about the social. And then what that means for the economic. And if, if we're starting to look at recovering roads from cars and, and making them more cycle-friendly, enhancing kind of active travel, um, that starts to create the idea of walking wallets and people slowing down and spending more. We've all reconnected with our local environments much more in the pandemic sort of isolating ourselves in the villages of the city rather than in the in the kind of wider kind of conurbation and um looking at that opportunity i think the the public realm has to accommodate more it has to look at how we create more space for um the social distancing we have to create more space for um a variety of people these spaces have to have dignity you know there's a lot of people who won't go into city centres because they don't know if there'll be public seating or, or sort of welfare facilities. And so people are starting to move out of the city. Hmm. So um, at the moment, because you mentioned place value, who would you say that places at the moment are created for and who's missing? I mean, I'm thinking perhaps um, of children because we see now with, with playgrounds closed and, and schools closed, they're very often only left with either their home, which might be inadequate, or with the streets, which are completely given over to parked cars, as you mentioned. So where should we shift that? I think it has to come at policy level to start with. Um, the, the paymasters ultimately are the ones that make the decision. And I was doing a, having a conversation about the City of London earlier in the week. And... It's always been a resilient economic driver, a, glo a global kind of cog in the big machine. And for them to stay vitally functioning, um, they're going to be at 10 to 20% capacity in the next few months. And over with 500,000 staff going in and out, that's very little. So for them to start thinking about innovation on the public realm, get, moving their people through the streets, um, that's, that's where it has to come from. And, and As much as we like to think about the triple bottom line, it is ultimately the bottom line that still has the biggest hand in the, in the decision making. Um, and yeah, making them more playful, more open, safer. We've all seen the streets become much more um, free of cars, less, um, more of car storage than car movement. And people are starting to reclaim them. And I think if we start to um, hold on to that, we can really make a, cha a change and that can start to change the air quality, the sound quality and all of those stresses that impact on the marginalized. The inequality and inequity of our society has been really compounded by the pandemic. And those who have space, great, they can carry on. Those who can work from home, great, carry on. Those who can't, they're struggling and they're the ones that are, are becoming critically ill. And a lot of them are our essential workers and staff. Um, And so it's a it's sort of a chain reaction of impact and public space has a, a vital role to play. I think that's a, that's a very good point. And um, what I'd like to know from you just um, as a maybe last question for now is um, obviously we've seen various cities around the world react in very different ways and you have quite an international perspective through your work. So what would you say are the cities that, that are working well in that regard of public space being much more, um, much more free and available for the public? Um, I think Milan has come out really strong. They've developed a whole strategy around 
how you start to look at temporary and tactical and and start to phase that through into more permanent thinking. They've gone way above their um, kind of figures on mileage um, and sort of recapturing streets. You know, the UK of investing two billion pounds in, in kind of the recovery program with a lot of that specifically, I guess, in the centres of cities being, being utilised, whether that be London, with over um, a considerable amount of streets being turned over, particularly in the city. But the Mayor of London has, um, has said that, you know, he, he has to be disruptive to make a positive impact, and it's an um, ambitious project. But if we, if we don't start to rapidly repurpose the streets for people, um, we'll just end up with a, with a recovery. And I think ultimately this, this is a chance for a catalyst to, to have a green recovery. And maybe I'm being a bit optimistic, but, and I might be proved wrong, but if we don't start to see the public space and encourage mobility, uh, maybe restructuring how we all move on public transport so that it's a staggered start of the day or a reprogrammed through flexible working, we're going to return to the 70s where everyone is jumping into their single metal boxes and moving through the city and we'll be chogged up with inequality through uh, air problems and obesity and all of these things and to just kind of sum up you know if we if we're if we are mobile we're we're taking huge amounts off the nhs cycling to work you know just as an example is linked to a 45 percent lowering in the risk of gaining of gaining cancer that's phenomenal you know inactivity causes 37,000 preventable and premature deaths a year. And over over one year, 525,000 NHS hospital admissions are due to obesity and inactivity. So this is an amazing chance to re-evaluate how we move through the city, how we get to work, how we go to school, make it more engaging, um, and start to refocus the sort of travel first, I guess. So if I understand you correctly, it's a, there's a huge chance, but it's a, a massive community project that we're all part of and we all have to adapt to that. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, just to sum up, perhaps the community spirit has come out, whether you're clapping on a Thursday or collecting your groceries for your neighbour on a Friday. Let's in, enable that to take us forward. There's a, there's a huge kind of energy there and people have got to know each other through this. and help each other out in a time of crisis. And so it's not opportunistic to see how we can reevaluate and reconsider the inequalities pre-pandemic and start to push forward with a, a much more equal society, but also built environment. Okay, thank you very much. Um, so, Paul, Will mentioned that the bottom line in the end still talks. So let's turn perhaps to commercial aspects. And going out, going shopping, going to restaurants, going to galleries, all of that is a huge part of life in a city as well. And that's obviously been hardest hit. But then again, the high street has been in a crisis for a long time. And, and you've talked about this before. But um, how, what to you has this pandemic um, revealed? Has it brought new insights or has it merely shone a light on old ones? Well, I think you began that conversation by saying this is the great pause well in, in our world of commerce it's the great accelerator um, yes there was a a, um, a shift in dynamic to, a, to, to almost a paradigm shift in and I say in commerce because it cuts across retail it cuts across buying it cuts across food and beverage it cuts across leisure it that the, the it cuts across all of that it cuts across all of that the changes cut across all of that because the consumer put his hand up 
And so to what Will and Ivana were saying about, you know, Ivana talking about residents and residential and, and Will talking about public space, I would, I, I would, as I sit here, I almost begin to imagine that, you know, the new tribe, the new community tribe that's coming out in the context of retail and transforming it in that way um, could well be found in the decision makers of the, of you know their worlds i think we'll use the term paymaster wins and i think in large part for the longest time longest time 20 years the paymaster has won the private equities won i mean the private equities sunk so many business that were that are going under now um and i think there's a sense of just being fed up with it um but how is that measured in retail well the consumer found that they just had too much stuff you know we just had too much stuff and we're done with it there is sort of a sense of a, of a wishing and a craving for authenticity and integrity and, and a knowing and a, a real drive to localism. You know, and the, I guess it was the first quarter of this year, the, the Google Analytics showed that the use of the suffix near me, so a pub near me, a shop near me, the near me, was well up 900, 1,000% and growing. And so, it's yes, it's immediacy and it's proximity and it's necessity now. But near me works. And so that whole community of localism was really, really important. Also, we're growing with a sense of connoisseurism and an emergent wish for learning. But I think one of the biggest things that I found and I've tracked it since the last debacle we endured in the financial crisis of 2008, over the 10 years, 2008, maybe I measured up to 19, so say 11 years, um, in the UK, at Companies House, nearly 5 million new companies had been started. Those are people stepping out and saying, I've got a better idea, and I'm going to give this a go. And they, that's enough of an energy move to commit to a company because anyone that runs their own company knows that there's accountancy issues and filing issues and tax issues with all of that. So four, four and a half to 4.9 million new companies. So take it on math over 10 years, that's 2,700 a week surviving and 442 a day surviving. That's the 30% of the 4.5 million, which is usually the business school metric. They're moving. They're, they're deciding. They're taking it into their control in their own hands. And then you look at what I was in with my creative trade concept, which is looking at the emerging brands and the makers and the new ideas and the new people and the, the guys that were working on uh, small, narrow brand lines and higher quality product and shorter supply chains and um, lower product numbers but higher product quality. And Crafts Council identified well over 200,000 of those brands in the UK on their own. So the shopping centers that were starting to overbuild the country, the property developers that were overbuilding the country, rolling out the usual format, um, stereotyping and homogenizing everything, the consumer finally said, enough. And you were starting to see that, um, you know, with the, the rocking about with, with Fortin & Mason, the Fortin & Mason, with um, House of Fraser, and Debenhams and other stores. Um, and they were just tipping over the edge gently and slightly, and some of them were leaning against the rails. Um, well, now it's, it's, it's going to happen. Big property companies are going to fall. More tenants, and we're figuring that anywhere between 20 and 30% of retail facias in the first two years will, be, will disappear from high streets and from, um, from shopping centers. Shopping centers will close. The middle ground in retail will fall away. Um, and one can be fearful of that, or one can be excited by it because it opens a door for that new cult, you know, that new tribe um, to catch their breath, to get a vision, to get some support, and to make a difference. And 
I think we really see that happening. And it's very much what, what I was promoting with creative trade. Creative trade is ever more eminently viable now than before. Um, because it's got different formats. It's got different ideas. It thrives on the fact that um, it understands the value of a conversation. When we own Candlelock Market, we found that when the maker was on one side of the table and the consumer was on the other side of the table, I had this really cool thing called a conversation. You know, the consumer would say to the maker, what's that made of? Why is it that color? What's that material? Can you make it bigger? Can you make it smaller? Can you make it blue? And suddenly there's a personalized personalization and an imprint on that that makes that higher value. And we found when that happened, that the spend per head went up and the frequency of purchase went up because it was theirs and they had a hand in defining what it meant to them. And so I think one of the things we're seeing in all of this, and I think a lot of people talk about it, is, um, and it's, it's, it's going to be stuff we have to deal with with the with the uh, the, the crisis is um, there's a change a transformative movement in sense of security what was stable and known and understood and solid and didn't move before now is moving you're not quite sure if you can lean against it again that could be fearful or it can be an opportunity there's a whole system of change of needs and a distance between needs and wants Needs being the necessary, only what I need, how do I get it to survive? And the wants is sort of more discretionary and, 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 and cavalier. We have found ways to solve the needs very cleverly now. We solve them locally. We solve them through friends. We, have, we need less. We're surprised. I, I would imagine all of us will tell you we're spending a heck of a lot less money, you know, being locked up. Get it. But you could survive, you know, as long as the wine gets delivered, you're okay. And then the wants becomes... Do I really need it? And if I really need it, then I'm going to research why I need it, what it is, and maybe go for a little better quality because it's meaningful to me. And all that is that it's rooted on the fact that I think our values are transforming. And I think that's the real beautiful thing. Um, if we can get our hands around what are the fundamental core values of what all this is distilled down to, um, like everybody, you know, I now know people on the street. And we've been very cognizant of spending time and money and whatever we spend on, you know, from the local wine merchant to the to the pizzas to the Indian. It's it's the local guy. You know, you gotta help him out. You've got to give him a chance to keep going. Um and, and that's not gonna change in our life. Um and what's really interesting is I have um twenty-seven and twenty-four year olds, so that's probably about Will's age, I would guess. <laughs> He's giggling. <laughs> But, you know, their, their, their decisions are founded in that kind of behavior. It's founded in that sense of support. I mean, they're, they're out volunteering, you know, they're feeding the homeless on the streets of London at night, giving them at risk of COVID. And, but it's their decision and their commitment to that community and their definition of it. So this idea of, of bespoke localism, as, as you called it somewhere that I've heard, um, that I've read before, um, that is evidently something that's happening bottom up. But um, how do we get the top-down, the commercial developers, to follow suit? Because they have to reevaluate what matters to them as well. And for a for an independent shop to open, they need they need more assistance, perhaps more financial assistance than a chain could have. Well, it's really interesting. I think it's a very good question because um, what's happening now in the real estate property world is because of the the um, I'll call it the disintegration of the traditional retailer and brand 
and the loss of tenancy and the loss of custom because the custom really doesn't you know come on after after four to six weeks in the house you go back to westfield you're gonna go great it's open or you're gonna go back and go well it's kind of like what it used to be and i'm not so sure i want to be here they're going to lose some of that custom what's happening to all them is their properties are devaluing significantly many of them are coming down well below uh, thresholds of loan to value which is breaching a covenant with banking um, into and into a which one of the largest retail owners in the if not the largest retail owner in the uk um, went into agreements with their with their lenders to just hold them i know we're breaking laws and we're breaking them, just hold them um hammerson's share price went from just over three dollars before COVID down to less than 60p now because the values of their properties are tumbling and caving if anything we'll see the property developers and the paymasters start to look differently at what they're doing it'll be the loss of their own cap and you you will see that happen manifestly over the next two and a half to three years because i think that's when it's really going to fall so are we facing a sort of um creation through destruction almost that we first have to get rid of the things that are not working and we'll have to go through a phase that will be very difficult for many to then re-emerge in a completely different way i think that's well put um in a phrase you have to be humiliated to learn humility um i think there's going to be look there are, there are many big retail projects that will survive they'll be fine but there's also enough of them that are going to struggle that is going to create enough daylight for innovative ideas, new thinking, new product, new format to emerge. And I think all one needs to do is really study the consumer, uh, which we're big, big enthusiasts of, um, to get a sense of where things are going to go. Um, and the traditional formats won't die. Um, the middle ground will fall away. And there will be much more room next to the traditional formats for something equally com compelling, interesting, engaging, and unique. Um, and be able to get a foothold. Okay, thank you very much. Well, I think now we've, we've sort of diagnosed our places and come to the conclusion that we really need to change them. So I'd like to invite you all to propose alternatives and, as Paul suggested, to make it yours. And uh, for, these per for the purposes of this, I would, I would say let's not restrain our imagination. Let's not stick to boundaries of what's easily feasible or predictions of what will or uh, will not happen. So let's give ourselves license to dream and to go wild. Um, Thoreau once said, if you have built castles in the air, fear not, for that is where they should be. Now put the foundations under them. So I'll invite you to build castles in the air, if you don't mind. And what I'd suggest is that we take perhaps an imaginary walk from our homes, then around our neighborhoods via streets, parks and squares, to the um, bustling centers, if indeed, if indeed they still exist. And... Um, I'd like this to be an open discussion, so do all pitch in and share your dreams. But uh, Ivana, why don't you do the honors and uh, take us to a tour of the future home? What might we see and what would surprise us? Thank you for that. And I think it's, it's um, after what Paul was talking about, sort of the, the, the high level, going back to the, to the local level of homes, it will be really interesting. And what I would love to see is people taking more agency over their own homes and over places where they live and um, making them more flexible, making them more suited to the way that they live. 
and these homes becoming a lot richer in 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 content in look intriguing designs and especially spilling out more onto the streets because i've always thought that you know here in the UK we're talking about a different like very different lifestyle than to the continental Europe and I always ask myself you know why can't people in Britain spill out onto their around their uh, use their homes like people in in Holland do and in in Sweden where you truly live in your home and outside your home really take ownership your, of your space take agency over it change it and improve it for for the benefit of yourself and your family so I and it's already happening in Hackney because people Hackney because people are spilling out from their homes onto the street and taking more agency, looking after, putting more care into their homes. Um, so it's a very vibrant, vibrant situation that I see in my dreams, where you you know you're walking down the streets and and you can see the community spilling out of the homes, and I think it will all all almost strengthen the community to support those commercial changes um and I, I my dream is to see more shops and more cafes and more more life community life in residential areas than we for example where we're designing new residential areas and we we constantly hit the wall when the developer is saying well a shop here won't be supported because you don't, won't have enough it won't, enough footfall what now we have an argument of saying, well, if people are working from home, these streets won't be empty eight o'clock to, to six o'clock in the afternoon. There will be enough footfall. There will be life in these streets. There will be kids playing on the playground, but there will also be people um, working from home, living on these streets, going out for a walk, having a lunch break. So I, I see my dream is to see residential area and commuter towns disappearing and out of new agency over our homes, new life being sparked in the community. Do you guys see the, because we had a conversation with this the other day, um, there's been a drive to urbanization in the last 15, 10, 15 years that's been quite significant around the world. And densities have increased massively. In some cases done exceedingly well, in other cases for the sake of. There now is a sense that um, people will start moving back out. You know, the, 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 the complexities of being locked in, um, issues with children, uh, just it just maybe is a, a bear too much. And even there's there's some evidence from estate agents that you know in the in the counties in the, the areas around London that there's a they're, they're selling more homes at a higher clip than they are in London. Is there going to be reverse? Will, will will elements of the urban retreat to the suburban? That's why I'm hoping. <laughs> Sorry, I jumped in. That's why I'm hoping that will happen. I, I'm hoping that the suburban life as we know it um, will disappear. In, and I mean this in a good way, that, that there will, won't be no more sleeper town and, and commuter towns that we know that are quite deprived of activity and 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 life throughout the day and that, that we will get more decentralised approach to, to residential neighbourhoods. There's some evidence in commercial terms in the UK that um, the secondary and tertiary cities, um, regional cities, um, I don't know, let's pick one, Bournemouth, um, you know, the likes of Cardiff, Bristol, for sure, um, will see a phenomenal influx of lifestyle betterment because of all of the levels of, of um, transformation that are there. Obviously, better residential, more economical residential. They are already great university towns. They already have an industrial culture that brings making and doing, innovating easier. Um, 
And so when, when someone's looking for a holistic semi-urban existence, that looks pretty sweet. Yeah, I think we're, you know, we're looking at different performance indicators now. And um, something that I read the other day is that it is, builds on what you were saying is the, the idea of the kindness economy, where businesses are thriving because they respect the people in the environment. And so when considering this idea of reconnecting and moving out, that's, that's quite a luxurious thing. And it's got to come back to the qualitative development. And, you know, through the pandemic, we've seen global collaboration and cooperation to, to fix things, to learn, to understand. And the built environment industry, you know, and the commercial retail still sits in silos. There's still a lot of ego. And we've got to open it up. This kind of idea of this is mine and this is yours creates these thresholds. And yeah, it's starting to move. And I think we can't all move to Bristol or move to Cardiff. And, you know, we're in fortunate positions. I'm thinking about it now. I live in an apartment with no garden. But one, I'm healthy, touch wood. Two, I have ability to get to Hackney Marshes and the Olympic Park. Others, elderly or less able, aren't able to do that. So the fix is, yes, a, maybe a distribution of the population to take the pressure off the cities. But as I was, you know, playfully there, Digital infrastructure will help the, the kind of the middle classes to, to dist distribute across the country. But as one guy said, you know, from working from home, he said, I can't tarmac my living room, can I? So I've still got to go into town. I've still got to do my job, get in my van, service you guys. Um, and so it's, it's, it's creating a democratic kind of more equal um, environment. And I think, you know, Westfield is probably one of the most democratic spaces there is going back to that. And yeah, we're able to choose the jumper maker because he's harvested his yarn from some of the most organic, well-fed sheep in the country. But there's going to be those at the bottom of the scale who are going to be feasting on Primark and all of the other kind of fast fashion, cheap stuff because it's the thing that they're going to still need to nurture that, oh, I bought a new jumper, I feel good, that, that sort of ec economic consumption that still is. And until we return to just kind of going back to nature but that's sort of a middle class thing that I, you know i'm i'm i like it but it, it's got to come across the board um so it'd be interesting to sort of see how that comes from a commercial and architectural perspective hmm. so does that come also from a to a to a re-evaluation of of our own cultural values and and accepting that there is so much difference that we have to sort of combine into one place Yeah, I think so. You know, we've all seen the value of the NHS workers and all of those that are facilitating, you know, the guy that delivers the Indian takeaway, the guy that makes it. All of these integral people that we've probably been a bit dismissive of. And we're going, we're going into politics now more than the built environment, but they're all layered up. Um, shopping local, thinking about the local environment, walking to work. For those who can, if you live in Zone 3, that's not possible. Um, so then it's thinking about polycentric cities, perhaps where you sort of start to redistribute like we did in the 90s with Reading and Slough and Maidenhead and all those ideas where you put those kind of sheds out there and everyone jumps in their cars and parks in the swathes of concrete car parks and commuter towns start to pop up around them. And, you know, funnily enough, someone was talking about the, the regeneration of Slough. And I said, well, that's, you know, it's got a, it's got a niche attraction, I suppose. But, uh, you know, you've got a big job of a rebrand. But equally, it's probably got more space, probably got better environment probably got greener, better air than London. And people want that connection to get out in the countryside. So 
One, yes, if you can do it, move out. Two, if you can't, let's make the cities greener and more spacious. How much is a sense of empowerment and ownership of that mission, maybe, around that space? Let's say Slough. If there were if there were elements of neighborhoods in Slough that, after having going back and forth on the train to London, said, you know what, I'm going to stay here. And then they look around and they communicate and collaborate and put together a force that maybe maybe that's where some of that rebrand and that repositioning comes from, is it? a collective new energy that was exactly my point with with living locally in those sort of sleeper and commuter towns that they are not going to to change that much physically but they will change community in terms of value of community in those places because people will be spending more time in them so even people will move mentally there because they'll be working from home more and they'll spend more time in that which means they will spend more money they will spend more care and attention to to the local area where they live in. And I think Slough will benefit from this situation because those people that move there thinking that it's a quick stop, you know, quick train to London and then regret it a couple of years because they realise that's actually quite an arduous journey, now have the option to reduce that journey and spend spend more time caring about Slough and making it a better place. So perhaps it, physical move of home doesn't have to happen, but I think mental move is already happening, all of us living more in our neighbourhoods and within our communities. So does placemaking then, if I understand you all correctly, become much more about looking at, at local identity and fostering that culture of, of localism and getting under the skin of it? And will that then inform design and branding and consumption i think so and um i think it was already we us as as master planners and urban designers we were already trying to implement this but we kept coming to a wall where people were just saying well you know in these in this 250 new homes development there is just no financial viability for anything other than than residential use um so we it's not that we weren't trying to to enforce this um, local strategy and, you know, try and be really um, um, strengthening the communities. But we, we kept bumping into a wall that was a commercial wall telling us there's no viability and nothing will support any other uses because all these streets and spaces are empty most of the time of the day, apart from school run and, and some some um, passers-by. So I think, I think, yes, I think it will... It will really make a shift. Well, that challenge was before us, before COVID, where so many of the, well, you know, the fast, the fast food, the fast food, the, the casual dining, you know, when Jamie and all of his, his restaurants went and, you know, there are not enough costas and neuros to fill the first six meters of every office building and residential building that's being, you know, proposed and built in London. And so that whole issue of what does the first six to 10 meters of urban space, urban place look like. Um, historically, it's been the shape of the office building coming down and the shape of the residential coming down. And we'll glaze that and then we'll, we'll pop some cafes in, you know, make it some retail. Um, I would suspect the more innovative ad address now would be um, how do we form that first 12 meters in a way that's best for itself? Flexible, dynamic, agile, often fit out white box, allow people to come and go, different tenancies, you know, turnover only, no base rent, um, market quality, flexibility, personality, 
and then then the other uses land above it in whatever shape or form. Um, we've been invited into in multiple locations with buildings where the only guy making money from the first six meters is the guy pasting up vinyls because they don't want it to look empty. And the question is, what do we do with it? And in a way, we're saying, well, you're really too late. Um, it's not flexible enough. You've glazed it all in. It doesn't open up enough. So there needs to be a transformative um, characteristic to that. And I think one of the groups that's doing it really, really well is a, an entity out of Holland called the Student Hotel. Um, they are student accommodation. They're a hotel. They're long-term stay residential. Um, it's almost like an Airbnb-ish kind of thing. And their first floors, lower ground, ground, and first, are just animated in such magical ways. Understanding the needs, the wants of, of the occupiers, and is really flexible. So they've taken a long time to understand and listen to their custom, what their custom wishes for, and what makes them special. Um, but traditionally, property developers of residential and office don't do that. Because their money and their value is in the uppers. All of a sudden now, place is really important, and that design issue. I guess it comes back to this thing where we've been calling everywhere village, you know, Brixton Village or Stratford Village or whatever. That that's about that identity, and I guess it's it's a mixed use development or a mixed use idea where you've got intergenerational living or working, and therefore learning and keeping people active and reducing so social isolation, which you know is the same as having twenty fags a day. On your health, um, social infrastructure needs to be. You know, this is what we're looking at on on the high street now. Is a more kind of varied mix. So you've got things that are, you know, the libraries disappeared, the community centres disappeared, and as humans, we need three places in life. We need the home, the work, whatever that might be, could be school, and the third place. And that's that kind of freely accessible place where you have a sense of agency and ownership and. In England, it could be the pub or it could be the barbershop or the nail bar, somewhere, you know, library, the village green, I guess, the common commonality, the space where you've, you can relate, you can relax. Um, probably what we're all going to do after we finish this podcast, go somewhere and have a beer or something, and whether that's our patio or terrace or go out to the park. But um, I think looking forward, the, whether it's interior or exterior, these spaces have to be responsive. And all too long, they've just been fixed. And, you know, whether that's kind of a Walter Siegel dreamlike idea where you build a home and then you have children and you build the panel walls out to create the space and then they fly the nest and you bring the walls back in and it's that kind of fluctual space. But we've got the data tools now. We've got the, the ability to capture the information. Let's start to really understand it. And through a pandemic, I think we've all had to take this pause. And, and reevaluate our relationship to whatever the spaces we're working, living, or being in are. I think you're right. I think the, um, again, there's so many imprints from this experience, but um, three words will rain heavy on so many urban spaces um, underlying health issues. And so the whole concept of wellness, wellness in space, active wellness, fitness wellness, um, doctors, nurses, proximity, caring, GPs, um, that whole issue of I need to be healthier in my lifestyle, in my life's place, in my house. It always goes back to the daylight and the ventilation. And it's, it's a complete, thorough wash through. And hopefully, by nature, demand of the consumer, that will, that will, that will happen. You know, I think it's really important. 
No, no, I agree completely. And I think this is quite a lot of us are living our lives, you know, not knowing what, what, what is good and what is bad for us and only learning the hard way when, when um, we hit a wall of, you know, poor health. And But I think being confined now has taught us what, what feels good and what doesn't. And, and I think it's shifted the priorities, it, you know, and, and made things really clear to us in terms of what makes us healthy and what doesn't from home, from public space, from street, all the way to the to the city centre and the commercial. We, I think everyone is a lot more aware of the importance of, of our health and well-being and how our spaces are affecting those because we've we've been in this in this um confinement that's really taught us about claustrophobia about inability you know inability to do things to go places to move how it feels when you you're not allowed to exercise how it feels when you don't have anywhere to go to exercise in in the proximity it's almost a, a lesson given to all of us and i i hope that that creates a huge shift so you've all sort of talked about localism, about village feel. So that means almost getting away from this idea of, of centres, you know, that we have a city centre where everyone moves towards. Um, so what does that mean for our transportation system and especially for our streets? How, how will we reinvent them? Well, I think what you're saying is not the, the, the degradation or the diminishment of the centre, it's just using it differently. Uh, maybe not using it as much, maybe using it at a different density, maybe using it at different times of the day. You have to leverage the value of what it gives you in a way that becomes more acceptant of lifestyles and the way we have to live. Um, I think in terms of transport, I think what's what we're saying um, with, the, with the, 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 the cycling and the walking and, and, and um, that sort of thing, that's, I think that's fabulous. I think we still have very, very dark Februarys and very, very wet Aprils and Mays, so you've got to manage that too. But I would imagine also at the time of a new opportunity, there will be methodologies to come into the, into, into the tubes and into the underground that find ways to clean and disinfect and manage that better, to cue better. There will be systems. It will be time, but there will be systems that help manage that. I would say we need to do it tactic, you know, do it in a phased and programmed approach. So we're doing the kind of tactical now. We're doing the temporary and that's cones and barriers and kind of markings. And, you know, that's an inst instant physical transformation. And normally that would get knee jerk from the car drivers, and I'm sure it's had some, but you know the shops aren't there, so the footfall doesn't really need to be considered at this point. And and then the programmatic, so looking at how we just start to reevaluate our our daily lives, moving through the city, and setting that up, so we then reduce the impact of cars on the streets and and kind of currently social distancing, but you know that stretch, and then phased phasing it. So looking at how those temporary adaptations can start to inform, influence, and inspire um, the future. And we can use that data and analysis throughout that process to understand what's successful, what's failed, well used, um, and start to fast track and enrich the existing master plans and city strategies that were there before COVID and layer them up. And, and perhaps it's looking outside the industry and going to the creative sectors and maybe the banking sectors and just trying to get some mixed kind of cooperation to see how we bring these spaces to new, with new life and uses and continue that ongoing so it's not oh that's that space is just for play because 
it could just be for play, but at one o'clock in the afternoon. And then in the evening, it might be for a catwalk show and a, a drinks event. And then at nine o'clock, people start coming out for, for dinner and, you know, in Spain and on the continent, people are drinking and dancing in the street. But then we need to store the cars after midnight. So, that, you know, all those things can start to mesh in until, you know, in a utopian world, we get rid of the car. But how do we move? And we haven't got there yet in terms of how we do that. Um, and we can't get on public transport at the moment. So, I think that's uh, that's really interesting. Set talking about layering because you asked um, Julian about what is going to happen to our city centres. You know, all this commercial. Well, there will be better distribution of uses. So as the prices of property come down in city centres because things are moving slightly, or commercial things are moving slightly out, there will be a better opportunity for people to go back and live in the city centre. So we get a proper layering and distribution of uses throughout that we, that we had before. And we don't have these extremes of, you know, in the in the square mile, there isn't how many residential units there are. And um, I think we it will benefit the city centres from residential uses and the footfall that they will bring and the, the sort of the, the richness of the layering of uses in those, so I think it will all go hand in hand, as as Will Will said. One of the other things I've been looking at with a group we're talking to do a call every week is um, look at leadership on national governmental level down to corporate, and it's it's by nature of demand has become collective leadership. They've had to bring more people into the room, so that there's always a decision maker, but. It's usually a group of people debating issues, informing the process. Um, this the whole stakeholder review, which we as creative people find in our projects in in, in practicality. Um, they are now um, being forced to do same. Even corporately, they're forced to be doing same. Some people are being moved aside because they're not. And one one person did a. Um, a little quote I heard the other day, you are the average intelligence of the 10 people you spend the most time with. Uh, that was really kind of cool. Because you can't put yourself out there as a titan. You, you don't know it all. There's too much stuff happening too fast. So gather around the 10 most intelligent people you possibly can in a broad array of sectors and disciplines and diversity to its hilt and then sit in the middle and see what you learn. Oh, that was quite cool. And maybe some of that will stick too. You know, um, we're even seeing it in the case of local government, where there's um, where the collective reasoning and the and the group conversations are much richer now. So maybe a good one. Great, thank you very much. Um, I think there's some great stuff there and signs of hope as well. And uh, perhaps we can move towards that utopian place in some way or other. And before we go, actually, about that, what I'd like to do to wrap it up and um, is to is to ask you. Personally, if you had just one wish, if you could implement one policy today, um, one measure to, to change something, what would it be? And the second part of that is what do you think each and every one of us and yourself can and will change on a personal and professional level to, um, to go forward? So, Ivana, perhaps do you want to start? <laughs> yeah, so I guess I've chosen something that can be easy, easily changed. Perhaps I should have gone for something else, but I'm going to go for this meaningful outdoor private amenity space. Um, we, I think we should change policies because not many councils in the UK um, and um, are imposing this on new developments and not 
there's so many homes and apartments being built at the moment without a balcony or with a very poor so that would be my my perhaps um modest in the sense that you think it's a balcony but i think it makes a huge impact on on people's health and well-being and what would you say is your covid resolution as it were my covid resolution is to actually be more flexible about my my personal life i think this has affected me greatly and i think i've i've spent more time in my community and um less time running around trying to keep myself busy um and i think it's just slowing down and and, and taking taking more in was is my personal re resolution okay great will how about you um it's the elephant in the room i guess um, net zero. You know, we've got mm. a climate emergency still ticking away in the background and the pandemic, in my mind, you know, God forbid, let's, let's get it done and get it sorted. But it's a catalyst and it's woken us all up. And it is that direct connection. What you said earlier about it being the um, emotionally affected to the rationally aware, it's, it's, it's brought the thing to light. To, it's, everyone has touched every one of us. And climate change is always tomorrow. And we'll do, you know, that's fine. Let's carry on as we are. We can do, it's gonna, yeah, we'll deal with it. We've got to deal with it every day until it's, it's, we've kind of meet those challenges. And it's a huge challenge. And I'm nowhere near thinking about how I would do it, but collaboratively, we can do it. Um, and then, you know, never underestimate exactly like Paul was saying, those people in the room are clever, but never underestimate the guy in the corner, keeping himself quiet. He's probably got some bold idea that you, you need to hear and, and, Open that up, open the room, open the silos, let's get talking and together we'll find a solution. Um, okay. If you had a, perhaps a bit more specific, more concrete, one measure to get to net zero, which one? Well, um, well the construction industry, I think, ultimately is, is a big player in carbon. And so, you know, the most sustainable building, as they say, is the one that already exists. So let's start looking at how to retrofit them and also the landscapes. You know, let's not consider them as one or the other. You know, I'm looking out the window now at a number of buildings that I could see potential in, and yet they're pulling them down and building new ones. And, and also look at them as building uh, material storage rather than material kind of, you know, places to put it and then in the bin. If we start to recirculate that kind of economy, economy of materials, we can go, okay, they're there. And there's, there's amazing people, um, Duncan Baker Brown and other, and other people like that, are creating these systems where you can catalog it so there's a building in the city of london okay it's got x amount of bricks these amount of panels right and so when they start to retrofit it and start to pull that out you can then go okay we'll shift x panels to the next site and so it's a continual process of material usage and i think that's a really exciting resource um so that would be my kind of one take from where we are now um but yeah i guess it's just reflection on on where we are ourselves physically um It's made me think a lot. I obviously, you know, like the rest of you live in London. Do I need to be here? You know, we live in a global world and this has re-emphasized that to me. So maybe I do want a better quality of life looking out of my window on the sea, wherever that might be. Maybe it's the South Coast, but coming into London less to do the more final pieces of work mm. in seeing it, but then it's the balance. So, you know, that's why I'm reflecting on it because we still need to be face to face. That's the most exciting thing. Great. Thank you. Okay, Paul? Um, let's see. There are two things. Two things so what, uh, what single measure? Well, single measure. Um, 
to me, there are two really interesting things to be following. One is trust. The re-entrenchment of trust. We've lost a lot of trust in everything, you know, on so many levels. Can I trust this space? Can I trust that guy in front of the queue in the grocery store? Can I, can I trust the test I'm taking? Can I trust anything anymore? Um, and I think to rebuild that trust is founded in understanding the new values. And that construct I find really very, very interesting. Um, one other exciting thing I'm looking at, I'm just studying, is this whole concept of business friction. When old businesses try to restart and redo and do it the old way, that friction gets really, really hard. And if they can't do it the way they used to do it, that means where that, as Will said, the guy in the corner is going to be an outlier. He's going to come right around with the best idea, and he's going to run ahead and make some really cool stuff happen. And when those guys start making it happen, that's really exciting. Um, so really, will we listen? Will all of us listen to what we've been told, what we heard, what we felt, what we learned? What will we learn? What will we learn that we really hold true? You know, it's one thing to be bumped by something, but it's also ever more important to have a residual imprint of what that, what that meant and what it did to you. Um, alongside Will Holy, in terms of looking at sustainability and the, the, the use of existing buildings, I mean, our business is built around building stuff, and I keep saying, this is not. Let's just go find one that's there. Because in our world, it needs to be much more agile, much more flexible. And, and if you take how fast things are changing in the world of commerce today, and they're really fast, and you look at what it takes seven years, eight years, nine years, ten years to build a new building, you are off track. So look at it truly. Um, and then I guess the COVID, COVID, COVID resolution is, um, for me, understand time. Understand time, understand the value of time, the time with my family, the time for myself, um, the time I give to other people, and weight it in a little bit different way than we did before. So almost um, getting rid of that sentiment of time is money, that time yeah, is yeah, much yeah, more. Yeah, yeah. Time is much more than money, absolutely. Yeah, it's true. Wonderful. Thank you very much. Well, Ivana Stanisic, Will Sandy, Paul Hanigraf. Thank you very much for joining us um, from your respective homes today, which I hope are all very adequate. Um, I just want to say before I leave you all, um, on behalf of Place Labs, and I'm sure of all our guests today, that we appreciate the luxury of being able to use this time as a pause to reflect. And not everybody has been in this position. So our thoughts go out to all of those who have lost loved ones and couldn't even go to funerals. Um, all of those issues that we're very much aware of. And our thanks go to all the key workers in health, in care, in education, warehouses, delivery, all the essential shops, to everyone who has kept the city, the country, and all of us safe and supplied. So thank you very much. That is all for this episode of Place Labs podcast. Our next Place Labs event is part of the London Festival of Architecture, which for obvious reasons is happening in the virtual realm as well. Um, if you'd like to, do join us on Wednesday, the 3rd of June at 5.30 p.m. British summertime, where we'll explore how a shift in power might affect placemaking with three provocateurs from Austin in Texas, Mumbai in India and London. To find out more about that event, head to placelabs.co.uk or find us at Placelabs on Instagram. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye.